I can design a product for you, fine, I deliver everything and you're happy. But also we started to have a line of business in which we were helping company to learn to work in the way a company like us, design consulting company, were working. So using this kind of approach, using this kind of methodology to innovate and transform themselves. And that was the funny expression, teaching to fish. And I don't give you fish, but I teach you how to fish. So you can catch the fish on your own. And this is where we get to the, I would say, 2015 and 2018, a phase in which design, uh, at that time, uh, design became uh, um, uh, a target for the big consulting companies. Hi, I'm Gianluca Brugnoli, and you're listening to Gut Talks, double G, U, and double T. Gianluca Brugnoli is a designer whose 25-year career has been dedicated to redefining the way we engage with digital products. Gianluca has an impressive track record with roles as the co-founder and director of Frog Design in Milan. He has a background in architecture and holds a PhD in industrial design and has definitely influenced the industry from his time at Frog, then McKinsey and Huawei. Today, He's the VP of UX at TomTom, where he helps people understand their place in the world so they can navigate with ease. A true believer in the power of design and how it can bring value to both the user and the business. Get ready to gain some valuable insights and lessons from Gianluca as we talk about design and dealing with uncertainty, digital cockpits, AI, EVs, Europe and Asia. Here we go. This podcast is brought to you by GUT, fostering a culture of innovation to build better products, ventures, and cultures. I'm Maria, and I enjoy adding value and helping wherever I can, widening my spectrum of thoughts, even if it can sometimes challenge the mainstream. This is why we give data a voice and co-create a collective intelligence involving both people who are not always in the limelight and those who are, in order to learn from each other and spread knowledge and critical thinking. I'd love to know more about you and your preferences to continue producing this kind of content. So type in go.gut.com slash talks. It takes 60 seconds to complete. That's go.ggutt.com slash talks. Now let's get started. Thank you so much, Gianluca. This is actually your second time on Gut Talks, and that's why you got this line like a pro. Thank you, Maria, for inviting me again. Yeah, really excited. We're going to jump into a discussion around design, UX, and it's going to be even more amplified this time. Things changed your end as well. So before we get started, since I did not ask you this question last time, I just want to know, how did you make your way in the world of design? So thank you. So I got into design uh, through a weird way, actually, actually very common in Italy, but not so common probably outside of Italy because I'm an architect. I studied architecture and my time when I was studying architecture, there was now, now there is a design school in Milan, but a long time ago, there were no design school in university and design was a course inside of architecture. So I you have a PhD in architecture, right? Yeah. Yes. No, no, no. I have a PhD in design. Okay. So I studied architecture as many other Italian designers. It's very common. So you start with, there is a tradition where you start in architecture and interior design. And from that, the, the leap to design is pretty, industrial design is very, is very common. Actually, I have to say that when I was a student in architecture at the Politecnico Milano, I've been very lucky because I 
I had the opportunity to meet some new pioneers and visionary people talking about the strategic design and service design. I fell in love with this, with this vision of the new design because it was something completely different from industrial, traditional industrial design, where you have to design a product. And I got into this kind of discussions about, we need to design something new, which could be a service, could be a digital interaction. At that moment, it was not very super clear also what were the opportunities and design used as a strategic asset to change things inside company and to create a new connection with customers. I, I repeat, I, I, we were really at the beginning of this discussion, and I have to tell you, in the beginning, it was sounded very strange. Also, uh, a lot of people around us, they were traditional industrial designers. They were looking at us like, hey, guys, what are you talking about? Design is designing a product. Actually, that was my, I would say, my imprinting. So I started design from that specific direction, and I loved it. After graduation, I, I, had a, I did a PhD in industrial design. Again, at the Polytechnic of Milano, and I've been very lucky to meet a lot of very smart people and, and brilliant people that they actually supported me in this, in, this, this, in this direction, working on service design, strategic design, trying to, uh, try to make it something bigger and something more solid. But actually, during this period at the Polytechnic, we are talking about early 90s, we had these um, uh, new things coming uh, in the university that was internet, the internet. So we started to use computers and we started to use this kind of co cool services like email, the web browser, and we started to use these new services. It was the beginning of a revolution. Actually, I completely fell in love with these kind of things and I started to write code to create my very first website and whatever. And from the, from this point I had, I basically fell completely into the digital design world where actually I kept on working on service design, strategic design, but mostly applied to digital services and digital products. This is also oh, pretty much how I started and how I got here. And after that, you went ahead and started like, I'll tell you like why I'm asking also this question, because for me, at least. Your name has always been associated with Frog, like the, the company that was later acquired by uh, Capgemini. And you spent years at Frog. I'm, I'm very proud of what you're saying. I'm very proud of because I, if I have to, the, the experience that really define myself as a designer, but not just only designer, also as a person, is really, I spent 12 years in Frog Design. 12 years? Yes. I'm, I started collaborating with them in 2005 and I, I left the company in 2007. And well, Frog has been really a defining experience for me again as a designer and, and also because it's like you join a team with exceptional, creative and mindful people where you learn a lot, not only as from the design point of view, how to design and how to deliver a product and a project, but also how to work together, how to face together with complications and how to grow together. This for me has been really, really an important place of my life. And I still see myself as a frog designer, a designer of frog design. I'm very, very proud of it. And I'm very happy that you, you tell this to me. So the story of frog design is pretty interesting because it, it was a special, it was a kind of uh, phase in which design was changing. So when I joined frog, it was 2005, it was two years before the launch of iPhone. That's important. 
because we were already starting to talk about, we were already talking about UX design. We were already talking about doing user research, the importance of understanding the needs and the behavior of the user you're designing for, and then align your strategy and align your product, excuse me, your product design, your design process to that. But in the beginning, it, uh, I have to say that we were kind of really the beginning of that revolution and it was not, everything was not so easy and not so obvious. There was a lot of, so I would say of <laughs> training. So you really selling the idea, selling the process, selling the approach, uh, typically customer, the typical design client you, you get to meet, they just want to see immediately something designed or something on paper and actually say, no, wait down. We need to do research. We need to frame the problem. We need to work in a different way. In the beginning, it wasn't very easy, but we did it. Uh, and then we had in 2007, in January 2007, I remember that very well because we were in the studio together in a small studio at that time. And we saw the presentation of the iPhone from Steve Jobs. And we immediately understood that that presentation was really something completely. That was changing everything. And, I have, and for the, after 2007 up to, I would say for pretty much six, seven years, we saw the, the market had exploded. Everybody wanted to design uh, user experience, design services and design consulting, and they needed to use design to change and innovate the product because, because uh, the iPhone revolution really put in the pockets of everybody a computer, always connected to, to internet, where every service can become an application. A bank is no longer a, a branch or a location where you go to do it. You stay in line and then you sign paper and becomes an application that is in your pocket and, and, and many other services become, they basically became application. And that was an, um, a phase where companies were not ready to, to do this jump and they were looking for external support. And this is, I would say uh, the golden era of user experience design, where you had Frog, IDO and many other companies uh, working and giving these kind of services. Uh, you mentioned IDO. Do you want to just comment on like what we read? So we're recording this in November, 2023. And there was this article that came about yeah. a few days ago uh, on IDO and the end of an era of design thinking and so on. So that's a big, that's a big, I would call it somehow clickbaity topic also like to, to click on it. So what, what, what's your, what's your take on this on what's happening actually? now at idea because this can affect an industry right especially after so many companies are getting design in-house or got design in-house got more designers you know with a seat on the board right as you call it and things like that and there's still this discussion this understanding misunderstanding love and hate relationships so and then this article comes in so What's your well, that, that's, that's a huge topic and I don't know how much, how many hours do we have to talk about it? What? It's really, really big topic. So this is connected. So the story I was telling, we had the phase in which every company needed to, to be innovative, to start, and because you know, the, the digital revolution, the digital transformation and everything is an app is not just a, a technical transformation. It's also a cultural transformation and a business transformation. You need to change the way you work. And approach like design thinking with all, I know that it's super controversial. There has been lots of discussion in the industries and also in the, in the discipline. Yep. However, uh, it's been uh, proved 
to be very effective to bring design in the center of this discussion. So how are we using design as a vehicle to help companies to change themselves, to transform themselves? It's not just to deliver new products, but also to change the way they work. I remember when I was in Frog, we were having a similar approach and, uh, and an offering, and we, were call we called it teaching to fish, so, which is, okay, I can work with a company, I can design a product for you, fine, I deliver everything and you're happy. And we were very, we, we were doing our job, I believe a very good job. But also we started to have a line of business in which we were helping company to learn to work in the way a company like us, design consulting company, were working. So using this kind of approach, using this kind of methodology to innovate and transform themselves. And that was the funny expression, teaching to fish. And I don't give you fish, but I teach you how to fish. So you can catch the fish on yourself, on your own. And this is where we get to the, I would say 2015 and 2018, a phase in which design started to be, uh, at that time, design became uh, a target for the big consulting companies. So you see companies like Accenture, uh, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, all the big consulting, they wanted to have design team in house and they brought I, I'm, I'm gonna interrupt like I joined Deloitte a digital way oh, come on it's like it was launching but then you joined McKinsey as well right yeah yeah I was in McKinsey yes yes I left I get to that? Yeah, yeah. I've been in McKinsey McKinsey was building yeah. their own digital team and inside yeah. the digital team there was also a small design team and I've been part of it and that was a different phase so design I saw design changing and from product design we started to talk about strategy we started to talk about the organizational change and there you see the attention of the big consulting company. In the meanwhile, actually, they call all the clients of the consulting company, all the companies outside, of, excuse me, consulting agencies, so all the companies outside, they started to build their own internal design team. And this, this is where the business changed a little bit, because in the beginning, uh, working in, in the first phase of working with a design consulting company, design consulting agencies, you were looking for support to design your product. Then in the second phase, you're looking to support, to grow and to uh, uh, improve uh, uh, the quality of your internal design team. And then in the third phase, what happened? It happened, and this is the phase that actually uh, started very recently that the business for consulting companies started to go down simply because uh, the companies, they have their own design team that's been trained at that and built the following the recommendation of the best uh, design agencies of the world. And so companies started to reduce the budget in consulting services and the business has changed again. What is happening? So you mentioned the article that is talking about the, the, the problems of IDO that is trying to re reorganize themselves of this new phase. Actually not, what is happening is completely not a surprise for me because we saw it changing also Many other, many other global design agency, they went through the same uh, reorganization because the business now has changed a lot and there is less demand for the kind of services, not because company, they don't need design or uh, design thinking again. They need it yet. Absolutely. And the approach and this kind of way of working is, is still very widespread. So a lot of people are still working in, in this way. Of course, again, with different nuances and different variation. But for sure, now the, the, the market in general, the design consulting business has changed and now companies tend to do that inside on their own 
and they do they and there is a reason why they they do that and not just for not just because in this way you have cost reduction yes partially is also because of that but also because your in-house design team and this is uh where things started to change uh you have some advantages so one one the, the team is integrating your organization there is a better strategic alignment with what the company wants to do which is different from being an external company that comes in, works with you for three, six, nine months, one year, then they go away and you need to go ahead on your own. So once you have a, your design team internally, you have better alignment and there is more integration on the strategic level. And also we started to have the rise of the chief design officers, the VP of design. So the design leadership inside of the company. So this is also the reason why the market now is changing and design services, there is less demand. I don't want to say there is no demand, but there's less demand of the design consulting services as it was in the, around the 2010, 2015 is, is different. Now company, they, uh, they do more internally. Uh, in my opinion, this SME is also a picture of how design is changing now inside of the company because uh, now, uh, after, especially after the, the pandemic uh, phase and where companies, they started to hire designers really everywhere. There was a very high, there was kind of hiring spree. So company, they created very big companies uh, in the tech world. They started to create uh, design teams everywhere. Now that you see that they are reducing this team, they're organizing, they're reducing the staff, reducing account. And now we are in a different phase where uh, we are kind of, I don't want to say going back, but the concept that design can have a strategic impact is acquired. There is no company, no CEO, no executive stakeholder in any company that will deny that design has a strategic impact. Now the problem is that everybody believes that they can, uh, they can play the role of design. So they can talk about they can deliver strategic impact and work like a designer because there is design thinking, because they learn how to be, how to run a workshop or because they learn how to manage, I don't know, a customer journey or how to manage a requirement document where you describe the problem from the user point of view. And in my opinion, this became a commodity, let's say. Yeah, yeah, and, and now it's like, it's like there are other company functions, they are, they are they kind of taking the activity and the role that before was done by very senior designers, senior design leader, and they're pushing design a little bit back in the position of designing, designing the product and, and basically the final experience, which is from a point of view, we are in a strange situation where we are doing a step back. Yes. Is it more stabilizing it somehow where everyone yeah. understands? Is everyone a designer? There we go. Throwing another in the world. Well, it's different. Everybody's a designer. It's a different thing. So company now, they are actually, especially in the tech world, after the pandemic, there is a big pressure to, let's say, optimize cost and optimize processes. So efficiency and profitability, they are now the new uh, imperative for many companies. And you saw it. So... We had uh, lots of layoffs uh, over the yeah. last uh, two years. And also you see the story of, in a way, also the story of Twitter, in a way, has been kind of opening the door 
to, okay, guys, now the game has changed and we can do things in that way, which is not the right way, in my opinion, but it kind of now is, is legit. You can do that. And, and some companies, they are kind of going back. We are turning, it's like we are, the pendulum now is swinging back to uh, a situation where a designer are struggling inside of the companies, especially design leader, they're facing lots of new challenges that are not just about design, but also about their role, how to have an impact, how to influence or collaborate or align with their other executives, where they sometimes believe that they can talk about design with the same experience or with the same expertise. And this is today, I would say, one of the biggest challenge of design and design leadership. Yeah, it is. It, it's not, uh, I'm going to frame it like that, but just to visualize it, it's not playing with a bunch of post-it notes that's going to make a difference <laughs> in that sense. But, but well, and what you're saying, I, I know we, we kind of drifted, but I think this is important to what we're going to discuss later on. Maybe the conversations are different in different parts of the world also, because you also work with different, like you worked at Frog on like Italian, European projects, but, but Frog is global. So, you know, you have. Yeah, I work on a lot of it, actually international yeah. projects. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and then McKinsey, then Huawei, and then now you're at TomTom. But then if, if we look at all these geographies somehow, is um, the role of design and the understanding of the impact of design the same? Because is this article from IDEO as well, just to close this chapter, for me, it's more of the impact that this, like this article can have on the industry, on some CEOs in different companies where maybe the conversations around design are not that advanced or understood, where it's like, are they going to impact their decisions and how to move forward and how embed, you know, a different or innovative mindset and culture in companies? That's a very good point. That's a very good topic and a very good question. So with the digital revolution, with the software revolution now, most software is the key driver to do business for many companies. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and with the, if you have software, you need to have you as an experienced designer that can design the experience so that, that, right. They can design uh, the, the application for you. They can design the website or whatever you need to get in touch with your customer base. So. Lots of companies today, they have design teams inside and let's say on paper, lots of companies, they define themselves as a user-centered company or customer-centered company. We care about our customer, we care about excellence, and you will hear that every time, everywhere. This is true. The reality is that there are lots of nuances actually, because there are different level of maturity. And the organizational maturity, uh, how to use design, how integrate design, and also designing engineers and also project management teams together are very different company by company. And even industry by industry, because for example, there are industries that they started their digitalization processes earlier on, and now they kind of, you know, they did their own mistake, they, they grew, and now they understand, and they are quite well ahead in their in their maturity process, there are companies that are really stopped in this digitalization process really just right now. I can make the example of uh, the automotive sector. I guess we are going to talk about this yeah. in, and, uh, in, uh, in a few minutes. And, and the automotive sector is really 
I would say, in the very early stages, in the very early steps of their digitalization process, they need to learn how to work with software developers and, of course, with user experience designer, because for them, and they still have to find the organizational structure and the organizational processes, their culture and the way of work together in order to be able to deliver these new experiences. Other industries, for example, I, sp I speak a lot about financial services because I work a lot with financial services, really starting from 2000. I started designing the very first online banks in the early 2000s, I have to say. Mm -hmm. And so I have a lot of, I know very well all this industry and how this has changed over time. And I have to say that in the beginning, they had the same problem, the same struggle. So, so uh, it's like in the beginning, software was just uh, a new vehicle to, to deliver their services. Then with the, with the mobile revolution, they learned that it's not just a new vehicle to deliver services. It's a completely different way to do business, to get in touch with your customer base, to deliver your services in a, and, and put your customer sometimes in a position where they can use your services in the service, which is, if you think about many ba banks uh, before the, the digital revolution was the typical service where you have to go into a branch and there is someone that is doing something for you, right? Absolutely, for example, yes. if you think about the IBAN code, the IBAN yeah. code, and now everybody, I guess, knows what is, in, what, I, what is the IBAN code. And I don't want to say everybody remembers it, but you know how to read it. You know what does it mean and how to use it, right? It's, it's kind of common. But if you think about it, IBAN code has not been created to be used by consumer. It's been created to be used by special people that were trained to use this code on specific computer platforms that were completely unusable for the common people. And basically it started in this way, like for special uh, professional. Now IBAN code is used by everybody. So I need to pay you, give me your IBAN code. I, I can, sometimes I, the IBAN code is, is turned into a QR code you, with the phone, you just pick up the camera and I get your IBAN code and I can pay you back for something. And it's getting kind of common experience for mm -hmm. many people. And because with digital revolution, what is happening, there is a change of, a change of the power balance. So the service goes directly in the hands of the customer. The customer picks up the phone. I launch the application and the service, I should be able to use the service from my phone with no support, with no manual instruction manual. With no complication, it should be there and it should be super intuitive. And it's completely, it's a completely different way to deliver a product and an experience to customers. So many companies learn that. And now they are really building on that and they are way ahead. They're more mature. They know how to use designer, how to use software engineers and how to work together, make them work together to deliver good experiences and good services. Other companies and other industries are behind and, and they are in different phases. This is a challenge for many designers because being a designer, a user experience designer in, uh, with, with the same level of experience and be sitting in a different company, you will do a different job. You, you really do a different job. You have, you have different challenges because in a company where there is a high level of maturity and they understand how. They can work with you. You can do, you can work in a way you can do, you can have an impact on the final product. And your impact probably is really, some things are already there. You already have your infrastructure. A company is already working with Figma. Everything is on the cloud. You don't have to explain anything. In other situations, you need to really start from the, 
your impact is to help the company to work and think differently and is a completely different challenge. Yeah. And this is today, you can see it in different, in different industries and in different sectors, design and a design job has different challenges and you have to, you have to help the companies, your impact on the company, your business impact on the company really depends on the level of maturity of the company and what, how you can help them to yeah. uh, in, in sometimes learn and step up, improve on their, this kind of maturity ladder and start to use this expertise in a different way. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack here in what you're saying. Actually, there were lots of layoffs and design is changing and has always been changing. In a way, the companies that managed to get that or achieve, I would say, this level of maturity need less designers to have or, or got, got that uh, capability in-house because designers did a good job, actually. And, that's, and this is a good thing, not a bad thing in a way where it, so, so people can or designers can move on also into exploring other areas. And this is taking me back somehow to um, something I wanted to, okay, I, I think I'm kind of drifting here. It's, it's uh, something we're going to discuss as we talk about software. But I just took note here because you were mentioning, obviously, the processes and the speed and what customers would expect, like, you know, click on a button and show me visually what I can expect. What's your take on um, generative AI now? Are you using this? <laughs> okay, that's another. Okay, we are changing completely. Okay, the simple the the, the simple answer is generative AI is here to stay and is is going to change design definitively. Yes, and uh, the I would say the, the there is a famous sentence that says your design job is not going to be taken by AI, but it's going to be taken by a designer that knows how to use AI. Mm -hmm. My take is that I, I think that the, the best expression here is how Microsoft presents its own AI services. It's a co-pilot. Yeah. And I see in this moment generative AI as a great opportunity for designers to you know, simply to unleash more creativity, to be more creative. It's going to end... With AI, you can do more exploration. You can explore more alternative. You can do that at a speed that before was simply yeah. not possible. So, of course, there are a lot of risk. There are things that are not so easy as they seem. Uh, of course, there is the risk to become very lazy because once you have a system that delivers to you a visual artifact, maybe journey, you get beautiful creation, but now... With also with with runway, you can you can have beautiful videos and and you can do that with music with sound. With sound and music, we are really to a point where we're really close to the creation of something that is completely done by the machine. Yeah. However, I still believe that the the machine is uh, machine is not able to create uh, the machine is not creative. Is the human mind? Is the you? Is the mm -hmm. Is a designer that is using a machine that is creating. Is the creator. He knows what he wants. You know what you want. And the machine does something for you, but the machine doesn't know if what, what the machine is doing. It, it doesn't have any initiative. Yeah. The machine completely lacking any artistic intent. 
the difference is the design intent and the creative intent. The creative intent is still something that belongs to the human creator. Okay. And I really believe that there, these new tools, they will unleash an incredible creative phase. We are really, and because you can do incredible things at, at, at a speed and, a, and, and on a scale that is completely new. And, but these still require a human creator that drives the machine. The machine doesn't do that alone. They, they, they just don't no, do that. Sure. The machine needs your creative intent because even if you sit in front of me, journey, you ask me, journey, okay, I want, uh, describe with your prompt, you know, the 20 lines below the option and say, okay, I want this. And you know, me journey can create infinite variation of that. Anything really. Yeah. Um, I can give you of the same scene. Okay. Give me women walking in the, in the dusk, uh, on the, on the street uh, of, of a big city of the fifties. And you start to add your, you know, your options in order to make sure that you have the right camera view, the right call or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mid journey can give you five options, excuse me, four options. And then from these four options, you can generate other four and other four. You can go ahead infinitely. So how do you know when is the one that matters and it works? This is the human creator. This is the artist that, uh, that decides what is the right one how to manage the right one. Many digital artists, they start with a journey, but they then conclude on Photoshop or they use other tools to finalize, to improve, to refine the, the artifact. Because of course, uh, this is the, the way it works because it, it, the human, the creative intent is still something that is inherently human. So I'm not scared at all at the, at the contrary. I invite everybody to embrace every designer, to embrace this tool and to use them mm -hmm. and to learn how to use them in their advantage. Of course, there is a risk because also you are not a designer and you can sit in front uh, of the prompt. You can write, okay, one this and one that mid journey generates something, but I, we did this, we did this, uh, this experiment. Uh, and of course, if you're a designer, you know, what is the quality you want to achieve. You understand yeah. the quality and you understand that what the journey is giving to you is not good enough. So you have to retouch it in Photoshop and other people, they don't know the quality. They just get to the first thing they get out of the prompt they're happy and they, and they stay there. And actually from, from artificial intelligence, this kind of generative AI solution, you can get a lot of garbage and, or low quality pictures and where there is nothing innovative, nothing new. Just a quick one here. When you're hiring designers, do you, is it something you require them to know? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But okay. yeah, but I saw that there are people, they start, there are designers, they start to use it. They start to put, yeah. they use it. At the least, a generative AI proved to be very good for, for drafting. Yeah. In the drafting phase, to get a draft, a draft idea, you want to have a rough storyboard. It's super fast and it's super efficient and super effective. When you go, when you really want to go into the details, say, Hey, I now I needed that specific mm -hmm. solution. Honestly, so far you have to, you have to, to move, uh, your, the, your design solution to another tool and you have to work in the old way. So, uh, uh refining, uh, and improving, uh, sometimes in, 
as, as you were doing before, so manually. I, I just wanted to, to have your take on this as in, you know, so just jumping into the next one, you're the VP of UX at TomTom. So I just have a quick personal question in this sense, based on your experience, because I think many can relate to this. You've worked in consulting with different brands, companies, different industries, then consulting again, and then you went to Huawei, which is product, and now you're at, okay, Huawei product, different products and so on. And then now at TomTom. So what, what do you miss working on multiple projects or do you like to drill down on like, <laughs> well, yeah, these are completely different. Uh, well, some things are the same, some things are different. Yes, when you work in the consulting business, you change your customer, you change your project yeah. every three, six months. Sometimes, sometimes I have I happen to work on project for three years actually. Yeah, <laughs> when I was a consultant. Well, it's different. It's not different because yes, it's true. From when you're working from the outside, you have much more variation. Yeah. From the inside, you still have a lot of variation because sometimes you end up working on completely different projects from the inside. So yeah. when I was working in for the design center of Huawei Milan, we we did a lot of projects for uh, smartwatches, smartphones, tablets, and PC, different thing. And yes, and this or and we design also a lot of digital copied solution. Now I'm in another company in the automotive industry, and actually we have like various line of business, various products, and it's like every product has its own problem, its own challenges, has its own yeah. team that requires attention. And the, the thing in common is that in the last 10 years, I spent most of my design activity actually working with high-level stakeholders, so helping them, aligning them, helping them to work on strategy, helping them to define a strategy and to use design as a vehicle to help them to implement the strategy and to, and to move the strategy in the right direction. So I wasn't, uh, it's, at the times that I was designing interface are really long gone. And now in working for, from the inside, I'm pretty much doing the same job. So my goal is to work with a high level executive and also other, other function of the company in order to help them to align on product visions, on product strategy, of course, building this together and, and then supporting the execution and supporting the execution should be going there in the right direction. That is basically this, this is, this is pretty, pretty, pretty much the same job I was doing also when I was in front. Yeah. Yeah. So. You have a lot of things going on, I say, it's moving pieces. Yeah, I would say it's also different. So it's, this is the job I do. My job is a leading team, helping team to get in the best uh, shape possible to, to do their job and, uh, and to be creative, but also to be in, in a good shape, to be, to have the right tools, the right atmosphere, the right input, the, my goal is to give them, a, help them to find a direction and to, and to support the way they're working in order to make them work at their best. So actually you, you, you jumped into this talking about the team and so on. So since I want to start talking about what you do at TomTom as the VP of UX, but you were talking about the team, what, what are the challenges you face or how do you get started with it? 
project. So you have obviously different challenges. What are the common challenges as a design team? And what's your What's the makeup of your team? Well, the design, because... the design, the design of the, the, the challenges of a design team. So I, let me be a little bit more generic. So are pretty much always the same. It depends on the phase of the project. In the beginning, of, in the first phase of the project, at the beginning of the project, um, what you want to achieve as a designer is, of course, strategic alignment mm -hmm. and to be able to impact some critical choices on how the product works, how it should be marketed and the characteristic of the product. So in the beginning, you want to kind of be there and be able to have an impact on some strategic decision, which means that you should be able to work with engineers. You should be able to work with product managers and of course, with the leadership of the company. This is true everywhere, whatever, if you are doing the consulting or whatever you are working from the inside. Then the project starts. And you start to design, <laughs> you start to sketch, and from the sketch, you arrive to design interfaces. And, and of course, one of the key challenges, again, alignment, because uh, whatever you usually, you define at the beginning of the project, you also, you define visions, you define uh, the North Star, design principle, goals, strategic goals, whatever, then as you move rapidly towards execution and also engineering, a lot of things need to change because execution matters and, and, and execution require, requires a lot of, a, a lot of rethinking, a lot of realignment. And during this phase of the design process is the biggest challenge is making sure that you, uh, you protect also the, the principles and, and the strategic vision and the design vision, the user experience vision you built at the beginning of the project. This is honestly very difficult to be for many reasons, because as soon as you start to design and new ideas come up and new challenges come up and you understand that there's something that was sounded okay at the beginning of the project, probably now needs to be changed or needs to be designed in a different way. So you learn during your design process. And also sometimes during the design process, the constraints, they come, they come up. Yeah. So you, st you start to meet many, many constraints from the business of any part, from the business organization, from engineers, from marketing, from other, whatever other, other part of the organization, and you need to uh, find solutions. It's like you are, a design project is like you're sailing on the sea. So you have a destination, right? I don't know if you are aware of the story. You have a destination. You know that you want to reach that destination. But you don't go in a straight line. You have to, yeah. you have, your sailing depends on the wind. So, and we, we, you have to adjust the boat and your sailing direction and the, and the setting sometimes of the boat and the sail in order to capture the best you can capture of the wind. And you have the, the bad wind that you also have to find a solution in order to anyhow move towards the direction you have to move. But it sometimes takes you sometimes very far away from your, from your regional ideal route and your ideal destination. Managing that's, this, that's this, a mindset. Yeah, this managing yeah. continuous changes over during along the, the project, it's really the biggest challenge. And it's a challenge because it's an organizational challenge, it's also a, pro, a process challenge, and of course, it's a design challenge because Designer in general, they don't like to, to deal with many, many changes because 
because there is a point where you, uh, you don't understand anymore what is the logic behind the product, what you are designing, and uh, you, you, lose, you, you lose consistency, you lose contact with your, with your original idea. And sometimes it can be can be confusing for many designers. They simply yeah, frustrating, yeah. frustrating, and also yeah. and this is a big problem. And is is in general is the biggest problem. I is a problem. The biggest problem I found almost everywhere. So in in every context. And of course, it's not easy because when you are in a leadership position, you need to help the organization. You need to do your best to stabilize the condition, to create the best condition, to protect what you think is important because. Because you're doing to deliver a good product, to deliver a good experience, yeah. to basically to protect and, and, and respect what you define in the beginning. So you try to do your best to stabilize the situation, but stabilization doesn't mean that you freeze everything. It means that you need to sometimes do a lot of compromises. You need to face reality. You need to face new challenges, new constraints, and they are there. You cannot ignore them. And you need also to help the team to react to these changes. Uh, and of course, that is a challenge. There are people that are flexible and they can react positively to changes. They understand that we can find an opportunity also in the, into the, in the things that are changing. And of course, there are other people that need more support because sometimes they get completely confused, frustrated, or uh, and, and this this is one of I would say one of the biggest challenges today. Uh, when you work uh, with a design team in large organization. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, a lot of things change a lot. Sometimes you are not part of the discussion that leads to that change. Sometimes you try to repair situations. Sometimes you, they arrive on your desk and <laughs> there is no negotiation possible. They arrive and you have to work with them. So this kind of continuous alignment in a direction with the company, with the stakeholders around you and with your team that is actually doing its job and sometimes is really in the, in the forefront. So they're really in the trenches and dealing with the really complicated and practical problem is not easy job. So it's, uh, it's, it requires a lot of attention, I would say. Yeah. The reason why I'm asking you this actually is, you know, I've been following you on Twitter or on X actually for a long time okay. and you've always yeah. been tweeting about yeah, automotive and cars and the future and things like that. And the, one of the reasons I was asking you this question is beyond organization processes and, you know, dealing with different stakeholders and so on. What you're doing now is you're working for the future somehow with lots of technology from, I don't know, like, like computer vision and new chips and things like that. So... And, and competition, you know, there's, so you need to act fast also. This is why I asked you, like, how are you working in such an environment to create the future when lots of things are also not tangible, uncertain, risky, but you know, you need to get somewhere because you're in the mobility space, right? Yeah. Uh, working in automotive is really fascinating in this moment because uh, automotive is undergoing, um, uh, double, I would say, double revolution at the same time. The first one is the revolution of the electrification. So cars no longer have an internal combustion engine. They still have an electric vehicle, electric engine, excuse me. Mm -hmm. But this is not the biggest one. Everybody, a lot of people, they're still focused on the idea the car is going to be electric, which is okay. It's, it's, a, it's a big revolution, but also, okay, I would say 
is not even the biggest one. The biggest revolution actually is the digital revolution. Uh, the cars of the future are software defined vehicles, which means that they are computers and wheel. And, and not only computers, they have many computers will. Actually, there are many, many cars and many chipsets that are working together and very sophisticated. They can do lots of things that today are not normal on a car. For example, you heard a lot about the self-driving car, which is actually, we are far from the idea of self-driving car. However, the car now, they have a lot of sensors. I don't want to say that they can drive themselves, but they can manage the road alone. They can see the lane, they can take distance, they can prevent collisions, and everything happens out kind of uh, pretty much, I don't want to say automatically, but they, everything happens because there is a lot of software. The software uses the sensors and the car can have some, some new behavior. Again, the, the self-driving car where you can uh, release the wheel and the car drives itself. Yeah. Uh, I, okay, I don't want to say they are there. Yes, they are here. Yes, yeah. but I would say for the mass of the people, they are still a, a little bit uh, far in time. But in general, you can today you can buy a car. The car you can drive it and you can feel that a car uh, can keep the car in the center of the lane. Uh, you can see the car can manage the distance with the vehicle in front of you and can manage the. They can have obstacle collision warning, so they can can avoid collisions in, in in every direction. This is possible because the car they now they are managed by software, yeah. and the and this revolution is is also touching the cockpit. And this is this is where we have the story. The digital cockpit is is basically like having you see everything started with Tesla. They have a giant uh, tablet in the center of the dashboard. And on the tablet, it works like it's a touch screen and, and it pretty much works like a big tablet where you have Spotify, where you have Google Maps and you have all your services that you are used to use on a, on a PC, on a smartphone, on a tablet. This revolution, so the idea that the car is actually managed by the software and if managed by the software means that all the things on the car happens because you need to use a touch screen, you need to and many features are accessible and, and usable only through a touch screen. It's a huge, huge challenge for the industry, and not only for the industry, also for the consumer. Because on the car, it's not like you have your smartphone in here. You are really driving a car, so you need to keep your eyes on the road and yeah. hands on the wheel, and you need to... Distraction is, is a problem. Safety is a problem, is a huge problem. So... The way you design that interface requires special attention. So in many ways today, the digital cockpit experience, designing digital experiences for a car, it's a new space for interaction designer and user experience designer where you can experiment a lot. You can create basically a new class of digital experiences. And this is the part that I love of working on automotive because it's like we are, this is, as, as I was saying in the beginning, is an industry that is going through its own digital transformation mm -hmm. and they are learning. They have to learn how to use digital to deliver new pleasurable experiences to their customers. And, and this is interesting because electric cars, they have features, they have functionalities that they have they basically were not available on, on your traditional car that you have in, in your garage. So today, an electric vehicle has more in common with your smartphone than with your, with your car. 
because it has an operating system. It can be upgraded over the air. It can run application. It's always connected. You can run most of the applica common application you're running on this smartphone. It can be in the car. So that is kind of the new frontier for the digital experience. The car is becoming a digital device. It's getting, um, it's getting part of your personal digital ecosystem and also a big part because the car is it's a very complicated digital thing. It's not just like a smartphone. It's different. It has its own challenges, its own experiences. And from the design point of view, it's another innovation frontier. So this is the reason I, I love it. And also, is also in the moment where innovation is happening. So, so how do you prototype this kind of hmm. future experiences? Where do you do it? How long does it last? Like, Well, to prototype this experience, you have uh, a part in, in, in the early stages of the project, you prototype them pretty much in the old way. You see them on, on your screen on your computer or on an external screen that is connected to your computer. You're still working with your Figma or you can work with other tools like, for example, like Unity. There are people design. There are, there are also specific platforms for automotive, but in general, you work uh, in a traditional way. You, in the beginning, you prototype them on the screen and you see if they work. Then when they, in, in many ways, the, the digital copy is an embedded platform, is an embedded software. So there is a moment where you need to see it in the context, which, which means with the, with the right screen, but also in the right condition, because you need to create a prototype of a car cabin. And this is what we did and what we are doing again. So you create, it's called the seat back. So you create a, a simulation where you have two real car seats, the simulation of the cockpit with the steering wheel, with the real steering wheel and the screens that are in, in the right position with the right size in the right position and with the right layout. And basically you sit down in the car and you simulate the driving experience and say you probably, you have the screen that is not in front of you, but is on the side or sometimes in front of you, depends from the kind of screen you have, and you have to test them. You can test them and you can test them uh, in many ways. You can test them as a designer to see if the screen, the experience on the screen is working as expected, is delivering with all the animation, the transition and the interaction on the screen. They are usable, they are accessible, they are understandable in the way you design them, in the way you want them to work. But then you can also testing and you, with the user where they can simulate a driving experience. So people are simulating their driving like in a video game, but you can see, for example, how they react and when they have to use the screen, for example, to change the temperature of the air in the cabin or to change a song on Spotify or if they have to pick up a call while they are driving. And there you without, see how it works. Without making an accident, basically. No, of course, without leaving the ends, with keeping the ends on the wheel, the eyes on the road, and yes, absolutely, yes. Okay, so you, so uh, yes, that is uh, you. You go back basically to physical prototyping. Yes, yes. It's very interesting because it's um, a car is like uh, a smart device. It's like uh, you have a lot of technology, a lot of sensors, and you and you still have a lot of physical touch points, starting from the steering wheel to the touchscreen. But you might still have some other physical uh, touch points, physical buttons, physical controllers in the car. There are lots of discussion, uh, no physical controller, everything on the screen, 
some physical controller. I'm, I build, I'm, I'm one of these. I think that the task screen, it's okay, but some physical control is better to, it's better to keep them because they are easier to use at the least the most used physical controllers. Some of them, not, not all of them, or some of them, yes. So, and you need to test it. It's, it's a physical space. You need to recreate that space and, and test it. Testing it from the engineering point of view, looking if it, is it working as expected, and then you can test it with the user to understand if it's working, if it's too distracting, if it's easy to use, and only all the other complications. Yeah, I, I, as you're talking, I have many questions, so I'm thinking where to start no, from. <laughs> so, um, it, obviously, it requires a massive amount of investment to because this is going direct to the consumers at some point. Do you fight over budgets to test more and more, like on, as we said before, real context b before this goes out? Okay, a car is a consumer experience. It's really a consumer experience. As I said before, like the smartphone, it's not like the smartphone. It's a different experience, but like the smartphone is a consumer product. Yeah. And consumer, when they sit in the car, they expect to have the car working in the same way. The same yeah. level of in, intuitive, ease of use. It should be familiar. There are uh, lots of research and statistics. They uh, so uh, 80% of uh, car user use uh, Apple CarPlay or Android Automotive. Basically, they use uh, the service that is, uh, is mirroring. They mirroring the smartphone in the in the dashboard of their car because for them it's today is a better experience. It is a familiar experience. They can use, they, yeah. for them, it's easy to use. It's there. It, all your life is already there. All your content, your preferences, your favorite music, your favorite destination, your messages, your contact lists, everything is there. So it's much easier to, uh, to mirror the phone than using the onboard, the, today, the onboard solution. And this is a very, very good sign. So today, car maker, they are in competition with Apple and Google with the smart, with iOS and Android, because the digital copy, the experience you have in the car, is a digital consumer experience. It needs to be designed with the same principle. Of course, you have special here, you have special features. It's uh, security, safety it is definitely a big problem, but in general, it needs to be designed in that way. And it seems that today, most of the car makers, they're really struggling to, to embrace this approach because it's not just technical approach. It's really about understanding the, digi the digital consumer experience. And this is part of the maturity scale we were talking about before. Yeah. This business, this industry in this moment is in the early phase of this transition and they have to still to learn a lot. And they have to learn a lot, not just from the technical point of view, but also from, it's a different mindset. So yeah. once the car is always connected and once uh, the customer, I, I created, for example, once I have a car that is always connected and I have a, 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 an account with my name, with my email, and, and the account knows me and knows how many times I'm using the car, what kind of trip I'm doing, I'm traveling very often to the sea or traveling very often to the, to the mountains because I like, I like outdoor life or, or I like to do other things. So the car knows all this information. It can, it can create a special experience for me, right? But this is something that needs to be built yet. It's, it's not there yet. So for us, the car is just a car. You sit in the car, you go to the destination, it's done. 
Actually, when the car becomes part of the digital experience, so my experience with the car starts with a smartphone. Well, I'm searching for the destination and sending the destination to the car. Maybe the smartphone can also can tell me the car, the state of charge of the car and can tell me, okay, if your destination is this one, maybe you need to stop to charge your car along the your travel. Otherwise, your, your battery, you don't have, you don't have an, enough energy in your battery. So all these kind of new things, they, they are, they're happening and, and we need to build, uh, we, we are dealing with a complete new set of experiences and we need to learn from that. And the only way to learn is to test, test, and also learn from the people that are using the cloud, collecting their feedback. This is definitely a challenge. Many companies are preparing for that. There is a, I would say there is a pretty, pretty good understanding that you need to do that. Because the investment behind the car are very big. Yeah. It's two or three years of work in the good, uh, usually, and you can fail. So, because if you fail, you fail hard in this case. And, and of course, there is a very strong uh, consensus that you need to be able to test and to be able to dare risk, because testing in this case is about managing a risk. So, the risking, yeah. you make sure that at the least you, you capture all the possible problems, so you capture all the possible opportunities, or you're mitigating potential risk or whatever. So you have to test. Of course, uh, testing is not a magic formula. So it's not that the testing automatically everything becomes works and everything is without a problem. Also during testing, uh, you can, so a lot of things still can, can be yeah, missed. Yeah, but in the auto, great. also don't forget that the auto uh, cars, they need to be certified, yeah. right? Before being on the road, uh, you need to certify the car. So also testing is part. So certification requirements is different from the smartphone because from the smartphone, you can do something. You, if the interface doesn't work, it's not a problem. You can change it in the second release and you're done. On the car, if something is wrong, you can have a car accident and people, they can... You can get hurt, so it's a, it's a completely different, completely different approach. Yeah, I was gonna get into that after, so you you jumped on it. So you said it takes about two to three years. Is it too long, or actually to test? In your case, because you said to launch, to design and launch a car. Yeah, yeah, I would say I I have to say that this is very different from from brand to brand. I work for for a Chinese company, and they were very fast. In two three years, they can launch a new car from the ground up, sometimes even less. Uh, other companies, they're still in, in different cycles. They can take a longer cycle. Okay. You, you mentioned uh, something um, actually along the lines of, you know, not touching, but you still believe that you should have some sort of a touch element and so on. Are we going to get to the point where you're just going to wear glasses and just control your car from your glasses or, or your headset? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I, I believe that the voice is going to play an important role in the car, uh-huh. not only in the car, but definitely also in yeah. the car, because uh, as I said, um, you're driving, you need to keep your hands on the road, excuse me, <laughs> it's a car. You need to keep your hands on the wheel and the eyes on the road. Yeah. We are at the moment, the vo- voice control is getting better and better. Uh, voice interaction are getting better and better. Today, with the new advancement of AI, you are not just uh, giving a command, but you also can have a conversation with the car. The car can, so using uh, generative AI. So we are already testing that. 
and the tests are really amazing. So you can really, you can ask the same thing to the car in 10 different ways, but the car understand that you are, are looking for a destination or you're looking for a special place. They can give you different answers and, and also different information. The most amazing example of this kind of voice interaction with the car is definitely a Chinese car from a brand called Neo. In the car, there is a little screen, actually, it's a little board with a screen on it that is, is, is positioned in the center of the dashboard and it's called the Nomi. I, uh, I invite you to watch, there are lots of videos online, you can see how it works and it's really beautifully designed and also it, it works very well. So it's not just it's not just uh, your chatbot where you can say, open the door, open the windows. It's much more, it's, it's nicer. You can even tell jokes. You can even, even do karaoke with it. It's a, with it, I don't know. It's a very, very interesting experience. So you have, and it's an experience that becomes, you can really see how artificial intelligence using the right way can deliver an emotional experience. And it's very, very nice. Or will understand you as well. Yes, yes. The car, you can speak yeah. with the car. You can mm -hmm. tell jokes. You can ask the car. You can ask the car. I mean, today, if you use a typical voice assistant, you basically need to give a command and you need to respect yeah. some kind of syntax. So you kind of, of structure in the command. Now with the new generation of digital assistants, which basically are uh, powered by new generation generative AI. You can have a random conversation and they can understand what you mean and they can understand that in a com in, in, you can speak, okay, I, I need to go there or I want to go there or give me the direction too. And they understand exactly the com. They give you always the same results. So they're much more flexible, much more natural. And sometimes they can keep up, a they can manage more commands in one sentence. So you can ask them two things at the same time that today is not possible with, with the standard digital assistant and, and they can, they can also, you can have a conversation that you can ask them, tell me everything about Chuck Norris and they can read the Wikipedia page for you. And yeah. it's a completely, it's a completely new story. I'll, you, you can say, please play, play gut episode number, I don't know, one, two, three, and the car plays the episode. Or you can ask him, please give me a synthesis of the episode. They can read the yeah. production that you write typically uh, when you when you present the the episode on uh, on Spotify on Apple um, the podcast they can read it for you so they can do a lot of things today and it's really and we are really at the beginning we are really scratching the surface of a technology that is getting better and better every day so definitely voice is going to be big it's going to change a lot of things and it's going to make the experience of using the car much simpler and enjoyable. What you're saying is actually interesting because with generative AI and so on, with voice, it could understand how you feel and support you. So if we integrate all the AI in this and emotional AI later on, just to see how you look like and your uh, face and interpret that, it, it could, <laughs> I mean, these are new types of experiences we could eventually think of, but not only in a car, really anywhere, going back to your digital revolution thing in, in different industries, but in a car itself, because often people could be alone, but then not feel alone. So Yeah, there are applications of that. Let's say machine learning is, is very good to understand human emotion. And they can detect human emotion looking at your face as well, listening to your voice. And the face is much more, is much more reliable and they can do 
and they can adapt their language. They can adapt the way they answer to you. They can change the language and they can understand that you, maybe you are there for, for a joke or you want to, you're talking about a serious thing that you are worried about that and it can change the, not only the, even a tone of voice, not only yeah. the style of the answer, but even a tone of voice. So uh, these are really, really getting there. Features to sell as now you, you know, decide that you want to have leather, you know, in your car. Now these would be the add-on features. They well, uh, yes. Uh, I mean, digital in the automotive is, is, is going to redefine and change consumer expectation and consumer standards. Mm -hmm. And the reason you buy a car. So you buy a car because today there are, there are market research. They say 80% of the people, they buy a car if they can run Apple CarPlay or they can have this feature. Okay. This is definitely happening and probably in the future is going to be even more uh, normal. So it's the same reason you buy today a smartphone. You buy a smartphone because you have that specific feature or the smartphone is part of your digital ecosystem, which is which means that you can easily move content from a, from a device to another effortlessly, yeah. so with, with no frictions. And probably the car, they will, be, they will be part of this digital ecosystem. So the quality of the digital experience is going to be a critical driver for the success of the car. And this is true because today is not that. Today, many cars, they deliver a very bad experience, unfortunately. Market research, they are very clear. So many cars today, even today, they still have a very bad digital experience because it's badly designed and sometimes also badly executed. It's not the right things you want to have. And this has, this has an impact on sales and automaker, they're learning that they need to get it right. But in my opinion, when digital is not just a different way, it's not just a different way to deliver the old functions and the old features of your car. Digital is a new business channel. Once you have a customer that created an account, you can start to sell services. Many services on the car will be, there, will, there is already a lot, there are already a lot of, a lot of companies that are working, excuse me, a lot of companies that are already working on, on subscription services. So, so you buy the car, but you unlock some features of the car, some services on the car, with a, with a paying pay, pay in a subscription for it because, because it's like your, your Netflix or Spotify subscription. This is a very new concept and, of course, uh, not very popular for the moment. But I don't know, many companies are already working in this direction in order to, to use digital to enable new business models. I saw a few a month ago BMW wanted to charge to hit your seat or something like that. So, <laughs> and, and yeah, that was very bad. A lot of people, they have very bad reaction. I don't want to talk about these things, but I prefer to, to think uh, a few about the future where, for example, if you wanted to have, uh, for example, if you want to recharge your car and you have a subscription in the network to charge your car to a network provider, maybe this is completely embedded in the car. Or uh, we can think about a future where you can pay your parking uh, directly from the car or can pay the toll from the car. Or uh, in, again, uh, a future where you can ins install services and you pay for them. From At the end of the day, what you're doing today, when you pay, today people, they pay to listen music with Spotify or to watch video on, uh, on, on Netflix. So you pay for that, right? Yeah. So probably 20 years ago, this idea was completely 
impossible, right? I remember I was there. People downloading music and downloading movies, and it was a piracy. It was right. And yeah. then, and then a guy, you know, a guy, Gabe Newell, one one of the from uh, from a video game company called Steam. He said, "Well, piracy, it's a service problem. You need to deliver the right service, and then piracy, and then people they will like to use the service." And Steve, for example, Apple, they started to give you the iPod and you can pay 99 cents for a song and then you can pay for a subscription and your user experience is so simple, it's so simplified and streamlined that you're happy to pay for it. We don't know what is going to happen in the future in the car. Of course, nobody will want to pay to get in the car something that you already get for free today. Or something, you don't forget that the car is a device. We said that the car is like a device, but actually a car, it can be very expensive, right? Yeah. Very expensive, right? There are cars, especially in the premium level. So I understand that probably you need to think about your strategy very well. So expectation of user, when you pay 60, 70, 81, 90,000 for a car, I don't know why do I have to pay a surcharge or something. But probably in different market sector, in different market segments, Probably not today, but I had in time, it would be normal to be able to, to have a service on the car and to pay for it because the car is connected. I don't know, a service that gives you the tra- real-time traffic information to avoid, to avoid the traffic jams or, or to avoid complications like fines, uh, speed fines or whatever. At, at the moment, we don't know exactly what is going to happen, but, it, but or there are already companies working in this direction. So I have a quick yes and no question because I know you can't expand on this probably. Are you working for the next 20 years? Uh, you think about, you you dream about the next 20 years. You try to vision about the next five years and you want, and you design for the next, for the next two years. One year, okay. two years. Okay. As you were talking like now a few seconds ago, you kind of touched on smart cities with everything you can do with yeah. a car because it's all connected. You have the telcos, you have even the insurance, the way we, we buy car insurance will change. You have all exactly. the regulations, you know, 5G that you need absolutely everywhere also to, to, to power all of this. So what's, what's your view on this, especially with the new ones that are being built, like kind of, you know, like the lane in Saudi Arabia and then in... Uh, the future city in China and... Uh... Okay, I am... Smart city is a very... It's a... Hmm. It's a very interesting discussion. I, I think it's more than 20 years the, that people are talking about the smart mm-hmm. cities. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, in many ways, we're still building the infrastructure to have the smart city in the way we people, we... Well, actually, when we talk about smart city, we also have to understand what do we really mean for a smart city? Because pieces are already there. For example, uh, traffic infrastructure. So understanding how everything is moving uh, on the road and public transportation is moving in real time. Understanding uh, how, how, for example, uh, the weather is impacting on the traffic or impacting on the way people are using the, the city. Energy consumption is going to be a huge smart city topic. I think that we are still building the infrastructure. Uh, I saw a lot of experiments. They are very fascinating. 
I'm really looking forward to the really to the day that I will be able to manage the consumption in my in my house uh, in real time, I'm dealing with a lot of data and whatever. But at, at the moment, it seems uh, not very close. Well, maybe this is not the answer you're looking for. And let me let me. No, let me. I, I I just I just wanted like that's an overview because that's a huge topic on its own. But I agree. I mean. Even in Turin, there's this accelerator focused on smart cities, for example. But again, it, it seems it's a discussion, as you said, that's uh, ongoing, that's been ongoing forever. But and if you take older cities, like when you built a city from scratch, you can just do whatever you want. And it's, you know, testing and trying out things. But for like Europe and older cities, what would that mean? Because well, when when you talk about smart cities, so that's 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 what you say now. Excuse me. Yes, it's good. So it depends what is the smart city means a lot of things. It means, for example, having a very well connected transportation system and managing uh, the traffic in a smart way. Of course, to reduce to reduce. Uh, congestion and to reduce uh, waste of energy. Smart city is also about energy, so be energy efficient. And I do believe that sooner or later we're going to get there because it's so important to, and the technology is there. We just need to deploy it. We don't need to prepare the infrastructure. Smart city is also part of smart transportation, is part of smart uh, living, so how people, they live together. Smart city. It's, it can be part of also waste reduction, energy efficiency. The problem with the smart city is that uh, at the moment, the most of the most the most interesting experiment I saw there they are starting from a completely different urban design. For example, the urban communities, the, the social communities, that this kind of social housing, that they're super energy efficient housing, that they, they create uh, blocks or this kind of satellite village where everything is fantastic uh, and uh, super energy efficient. Uh, the movement of people and vehicles is perfectly managed. Uh, and also you can create this kind of areas, no, no car areas, everything. And you can have people also uh, working together to solve community problems. You, you see, it's, it's, a, it's a big concept and I like it a lot. And honestly, I really hope that we're going to see more of this. There are a few of them in Europe and I hope there are going to be more of them. I, I still have a big question mark if these experiences, how they can scale. Because I see a lot of very interesting experiment. I see a lot of very interesting uh, solutions. Some of them I like. I really like them, and I I would like to live in one of these. Actually, I I like the idea to have a, you know a sustainable architecture, energy efficiency, a good uh, you know green areas protected where you can have a, you can have kids f uh, completely protected by everything. Who doesn't want to live in a situation like that? I don't know. I would like, but I see this today working pretty well on a small scale. Yeah. I still don't see a solution that can scale, scale really reaching uh, a completely different dimension. And in my opinion, the problem here is also 
that it's easier to design these communities, these, these experiences from the ground up, from the blank slate, is less, I see, very challenging to adapt to the existing uh, urban context. I'm also thinking about Europe. Europe, you have lots of old building, lots of things that are, I don't see them very easily uh, adaptable to to new solution, but maybe yes, maybe I'm, I'm just too pessimistic. No, that's what I was trying to insinuate, like Europe and cities, as you said, from the ground up, how, how would you do it? So yeah, okay. I think that's a, an ongoing discussion, but I think the takeaway here is you spoke about like closed ecosystems of- Yeah, by the way, excuse me. Yeah. Just to answer to your, to your final point, um, the example I'm making are based in Europe and they revolve around building communities. And this is why I like them, because they, I believe they are interesting and successful. Because it's not just to create an energy efficient, an energy efficient machine. Yeah. It's about creating a community that shares visions and values, and they can live in a different way. Mm-hmm. So this is what makes this community work very well. Around the world, I see a lot of experiments where they're actually building machines. And sometimes in this kind of smart cities, machines, I feel like they're not building communities. They are not building uh, a space for the people. They can share vision. They can share values. But again, and they can collaborate together to create this vision and to, to make this uh, smart city experience uh, come alive. But probably, uh, I don't know, probably it's too early to understand what is working, what is not working. But definitely the big difference is from a period, this works when you can create a community around that. It's not just a a smart city like a machine. Yeah, it makes sense. And you're reminding me of like, I I know that Politecnico di Milano did lots of research and some experiments around social housing in different areas in Italy. On yes. the community and so on. So, so just to wrap up here. So basically, the, most of the discussion here was about kind of closed ecosystems and lots of data floating, but lots of things can be done based on what you're saying. I, I want to throw this thing here, and I took note of a podcast. I didn't, I didn't listen to the whole podcast, but I, I saw a clip of uh, Joe Rogan interviewing Elon Musk was saying that airbags are so good in Tesla that they kind of uh, get updated by the software. And the airbags can be deployed in uh, different ways based on weight, based on pressure or pressure distribution, if you want, on the seats and some other parameters, like if you're a child or, or things like that. So the bottom line is you don't need a seat belt. <laughs> so what's, what's your take on that? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> there are lots of scenarios which the seatbelt can be beneficial, even you don't need to have the airbag. Okay. I, I, I don't okay. know. When, you, when you're in the car, you can, everybody, you can think about your experience as a driver or as a passenger. There are a lot of situations which the seatbelt can help you without having the need to open an airbag. Eh? Usually the airbag works only in a catastrophic situation, right? Actually, I had, I had an accident about two years ago. Ah, okay. Sorry to you. No, no, it's okay. Actually, just to put things into perspective, 
it was a station car that uh, we rented just from the airport. And 10 minutes in, someone, I think, was on the phone or something, just hit the car from the back. I can't remember the airbags going on, but I remember my seatbelt saved me, obviously. But the seatbelt was to throw in the bin after that. Actually, the whole car. <laughs> but uh, the interesting part is it was an Audi car and Audi called directly. So, and that's not a, you know, a, a digital first kind of car or a software driven car. It's a normal car, tradition. But that was like the first kind of experience. There may, be, there, may be a service, there may be a service you want to pay for, right? I work for a company that, that, that I did a, a small project when I was a consultant for a company that uh, builds the black boxes that can, you can put in the car. Uh-huh. Most of these black boxes are used by, for example, car sharing systems. So they can monitor and control the car remotely with all the data. And, uh, and also it can be used by an insurance. If you accept to get one of these, to, to have one of these black box in your car, the insurance can, you pay a lower premium. Okay. And also these black boxes are very efficient, very necessary for fleets. For example, okay. if you're renting car or you have a fleet of, of delivering trucks. Okay. These black boxes are so efficient. They can give you not only in real time, the position of the car, they can give you all the metrics about the car. They can tell you the speed. They can tell you if they're on bumpy road. They can tell you the way the car is driven. So if you are accelerating too much or braking too abruptly, they can give you these details. So they can give details about the driving style of the driver. And more importantly, they can detect with a very high level of precision an incident. Not just that they can tell you, okay, the, the car just has an incident and you get a notification in a dashboard in a central control room, but it can, in a, in a, in a matter of a few minutes, this company can give you the position on the map where the incident happened, when and they can reconstruct the, the mechanic, the, the dynamic of the incident, because they know if the car has been hit by, you know, from, from the back or they hit someone in the front or from the side, if the car drifted, if they, they can, they have all the details about the behavior of the car during the incident, if the car goes up and down, whatever. They have every, all this detail and they can rebuild in a, in a matter of a few minutes, all the details about the incident. In this case, this detail can save people life. They can make sure that you have, that you have the, the security and you can have an ambulance to your place. And, and this is also funny. They can communicate to your insurance that you had an incident. The incident is very likely your car has been damaged in this way because they know what happened. And very likely the damage on the car can be grouped in tiers. So it's below, I don't know, three, 400 euro, between three, 400 and 1,000. Above 1,000 is a big incident, is something serious. And they can do that in a matter of minutes. And I saw it working and it's really, really interesting. It is. It is, especially from the data monetization side and all the tiers and everything uh, that the insurance companies. Well, well again, if you, if, you have a, if you have a fleet owner, you're managing a fleet of taxis or a fleet of yeah. trucks, uh, it's really, really, or uh, a fleet of uh, um, a vehicle to rent. It's, it's definitely, you need to have it. 
fork normal consumer car probably is a service you need to pay for. And why not? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a lifesaver service. Yeah. It could be the, the next, the next uh, airbag. Elon Musk will airbag. tell you it was, that you no longer need an airbag. <laughs> there we go. So no seat belt, no airbag. Oh no, that would be yes seat belt with <laughs> no airbag. And the well, honestly, the, 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 <laughs> I, I completely like the idea that you can have more efficient airbag if you can have this kind of data and calculation. And, and not the, sure, not the, sure the right infrastructure. Do. Yeah, not I mean, sure you can do without the belt, but probably, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that was on the podcast side. <laughs> I don't know. I listened to it and I'm like, okay, I saved it. I had to ask you this question. Um, so I'm not going to ask you about your gut feeling here, which is the recurrent question I ask. I'm going to invite the listeners to go to listen to your previous podcast and I'm going to be putting the link and then they can find out. What's your take on that? I have a question. At Top Tom, do you guys work with startups or create, you know, spin-offs, you know? Yeah, the company, the company is working with startups, especially on map services and map data. Yes. Okay. And you mentioned traditional um, car manufacturers that uh, deliver bad experiences. So, um, I was just taking notes of uh, what you were saying. And, and I wrote here, what's, what's your view for the future of Italian car manufacturers? So at the moment, the only Italian car manufacturer remained is Ferrari. Okay. Okay. You're talking about the uh, acquisitions. That's okay. <laughs> no, that's, that's, I don't know. It's uh, I have to tell you that Cinquecento has been one of the most a sole car in Europe for quite a few time. The Fiat 500. Yeah, the Fiat uh, 500. Chateau, yeah. Okay. But um, how do you, do you see, are they, you know, are they playing catch up or like what? Well, now you're talking about Stellantis and uh, yeah, I, Stellantis is doing a very big investment to, to be one of the leader in, in digital and electric automotive. Okay. Yeah. And I think they have an accelerator or something like that trying to do things. Okay. Um, is there anything uh, you would like to add we did not discuss? I know that we sort of mentioned your experience working with European and international companies, but also with Chinese companies. Is there anything you would like to add to this that we did not talk about? Well, Chinese company have a completely different internal market, especially when it comes to technology. They work with the internal consumer a base that is very open to innovation. So uh, co Chinese consumers, they are very open to innovation. They're very open to experiment new things. They're very open to technology. And, and they see technology as a vehicle to deliver also uh, premium experiences, mm -hmm. which is, is a completely different mindset uh, from European consumer. In this moment, I would say that uh, the the biggest lesson learned working also for Chinese companies that Europe is Europe in this in this moment is really uh, uh, probably hold back by a very conservative mindset. It's true that we we are very good in designing premium and excellent, very high quality product because Europe in that. Luxury is being invented in Europe. So the best, the best fashion brand, the best luxury brands are European and some of them are Italian. So this is definitely our heritage. This is definitely our asset and we are good at that. But I have to say that 
looking at the Chinese, in general, not only Chinese, but in general, also the Asian market, there is a new approach to technology they that they are creating, a, 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 they have a different mindset. So technology for them is also, is also vehicle to deliver. Uh, they are more open to, to experiment. They are more open to try new things and they are more open to, to re really to, to use, the, to use uh, technology to create something new, to leave new experiences. And I don't know, this is very interesting. So there is a lot to learn from that as a designer, but also as just as a curious person, I'm a very curious person. And, and I, I, I think that there is a lot of interesting uh, behavior, interesting mindset coming from, from in this case, in this moment from China. And we should keep our eyes open and probably we should learn. Europe sometimes thinks in Europe, in Europe, I see that sometimes we believe that we have no longer to learn, but I do believe, especially on digital Europe has still a lot to learn and a lot to improve also because we are too, we tend to be a little too conservative to a little risk adverse and, and we tend, we tend to think that technology is just, it's just technology is not something more than that. And from my point of view, we, this can be in the long run, something that might not be good for our future. That's a good wrap up to the way, the way we started, where you were talking about the levels of maturity. But again, it's also, it's also about that digital innovation is not just a, a new thing. It's not just a, a new way to do the, the old things. It's yes, a completely yes. different mindset. It's a, and also it's, it, it's a mindset that opens up to new experiences, to new way of doing things. And again, in my opinion, uh, in this moment, looking at Asia and of course to China, but not just China, but also Korea and uh, Vietnam and also Japan, uh, they have a completely, they are much more open to innovation, much more open to new technology, to new things. And in a way, uh, I see this less and less in, the, in, in Europe. Europe needs to start to, uh, to, to, it needs to start to, to work on innovation and to work on digital with, with, a, in, in a different way. If you think about it. Until the 2000, Europe was really at the forefront innovation because we had mobile technology and telecommunication were in the leader we, we invented in Europe and the leader was, was Nokia that was a yeah. European leader. The best semiconductor company in, in Europe until 2000, it was Philips and all the subsidiaries of Philips and we were leading that market. The World Wide Web technology is born in, in, in Europe. So. The people, the mind, the culture, we have it, but it seems that we are kind of falling behind on, on the, on the new waves of innovation. And again, from a point of view, for example, artificial intelligence, we really, we can really fall behind and then just, uh, so we have, a, we have us or China building their own solution and we, and we basically are following. We. We don't have our own internal solution, which is from a point of view, not good. It's not in the interest of Europe, not just in the 
for European business, European company, but not for European citizen, I guess, uh, is in a completely in the interest for us as a European citizen to be in control of our data, to be in control of also of the digital application we use the day they belong, they are part of, of the European, uh, European space and the European culture. If we, if we buy digital technologies and solutions from the outside, this is not in our interest. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Maybe this then too long. No, that, that takes two. No, no, not to another topic, but we're not going to get into that because there are lots of, uh, there's noise around, you know, regulations in Europe now with AI last year with blockchain. So all this also affects, I think. We are, and you, Europe is very good at regulations, uh, yeah. regulating. We should be, it's okay, but we should get very good in innovating too. I like that as the last statement. So my last question to you is, how do you stay up to date? How do you stay informed? What, what do you read? I'm very curious. I read everything. I listen everything. I learn from everybody, which is very important. I've been very, very, very lucky to have around me lots of smart people, lots of brilliant people from which I learned a lot. But you, you have to stay curious and, and you, you have to keep on learning. Uh, that's the only way you can be creative. Cool. Thank Cre you. And I'm sure lots of people will learn from you from this episode, actually. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you've derived value from the show, you can subscribe on platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Your feedback is incredibly important to us, so please consider rating the show or leaving a review. It's a fantastic way to help other podcast explorers discover our content. To gain more insights, visit our website at ggutt.com. This is wgutt.com and see you next time.